0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Angela Hessen. She's a curator at the National Gallery of Victoria, and she's also based at the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions. She's put together an exhibition called Love, Art of Emotion, 1400 to 1800. Angela joined me in the studio to discuss the range of ways humans love and how we express them through art. And you're listening to 3 R with Amy Mullins. The show is Uncommon Sense and, as promised, we have a very special guest, Dr Angela Hessen, who is curator at the National Gallery of Victoria and she joined us to talk about their latest exhibition on love. Thanks for joining us, Angela.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Amy.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, I got the uh, the chance to have a look at this exhibition on Saturday and it was just fantastic, really beautiful. Congratulations, for. Oh.
1: Look, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to work on, and it's um, it's actually quite easy to make a uh, a beautiful exhibition when you're working with with such an amazing collection. So you are
0: right yeah. because
1: this uh, this actual um, this exhibition covers a
0: huge time period. So we're looking at um, fourteen hundred till eighteen hundred, and there's a great deal of of movements within that time period, and to kind of give people a sense of what that visually looks like because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine what was happening in 1400 and what art might have looked like at that point. But in, in this exhibition that, that really does kind of move through these time periods, but it isn't chronological, it's thematic, um, what what kind of styles are covered off, artistic styles?
1: Well, look, it is actually an extraordinarily broad period and it's also brought in another way in that we're covering all of Europe with it so there is obviously distinct differences in what's happening in in northern Europe for example to what's happening in Italy or in England Um, so stylistically we really move from late medieval right through to the end of the exhibition where we're sort of in coming right back into the middle of romanticism so it's a it's a very broad period and within that then we also we also cover renaissance and baroque and rococo um, and the other thing that was really exciting was being able to work across all of the different departments at ngv so we've drawn a lot on paintings and sculpture but also on decorative arts costume jewelry our furniture textiles so within what that looks like, it's really an extremely broad range.
0: And it's very lush, right? Because at first of all, it's the, the walls are painted black, so that's kind of a rare thing in a gallery nowadays is to not to walk in and it not be either white or some kind of pastel or strong
1: <laughs> colour, right? Yeah, this is true. I mean, it's kind of it's the opposite of the, the white cube, which was part of what we really wanted is if you're curating an exhibition about emotion, it has to be evocative. You have to feel it other in, in, a, in a visceral way as well as experience it intellectually and the thing that that black does is it's actually people think of it as a cold color but it's actually very very intimate and quite enveloping you know we think about darkness in terms of privacy and secrecy and intimacy and so it, it creates a very intimate and and quite beautiful space and practically actually most artworks look beautiful against black as well. It, it really brings together a lot of quite disparate styles um, in a way that a lot of other colours don't. So, it's, it was useful. It does, yeah. yeah.
0: And it's interesting because, as you say, the, the styles are quite disparate and you can see that in the Baroque, there's a great deal of light and shade and there's huge amounts of, as they say, chiaroscuro. Absolutely. All about dark, darkness and shade and light. And That then contrasts with some of the Rococo pictures which are very um, pastel and vibrant in in different ways and, you know, you've got the gilded frames. I'm thinking particularly the image that I've posted on on my Facebook um, for the show which is – it's by Francois Boucher and it's called The Agreeable Lesson.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And that is actually just uh, just quietly one of my favourite um, artworks in the National Gallery's permanent collection. And it comes in a, um, in a pair but it also actually started off in a
1: four so there used to be four, I understand. Yes, yes, it was one of a series and they are all quite theatrical in, in subject, as many Rococo paintings are. Um, and the the pair to it that we have at the NGV is called The Mysterious Basket, which is another wonderful title, yeah. I think. Um, and what they are is really, um, they are emblematically kind of Rococo paintings with a very frivolous pastoral subject matter with this imagery of of a kind of imagined rusticity i guess and i say imagined because of course these are designed very much for aristocratic Upper class consumers and viewers. And they're very much about the idea of taking the pastoral, taking the idea of simple country life, but making that aesthetic and pleasurable. It's not about the grittiness of rural labour. It's very much about ideas of leisure and the countryside as a site of of pleasure and seduction and and enjoyment. Because this is one of the aspects of love, right? Um, And it's in the
0: first part, uh, which is anticipation. So in this, in the gallery and that is a it's that focuses a lot on romantic love um in the first part because you're anticipating this and I guess Rococo is well versed in anticipation and um erotic scenery and and it's very much alluded to but not directly depicted in in a very overt way so for example in that um that artwork the first that we're describing about the agreeable lesson that's um that's in there and it's when you enter it's on the right on the first right um and there's also a porcelain that, that is based on this painting. Yes,
1: Chelsea and English porcelain, yeah. Yeah,
0: and yeah. so and as you can see, then it proliferates in terms of the Rococo style throughout of Europe, in, including Bavaria and Germany as well. But we see that um, there's a, a shepherd and a shepherdess and they're very idealised and certainly you would assume, as you say, not really realistic in the sense of um, how real life is in the country. And it seems to be more of an outlet, like a way of, um, expressing, you you know, kind of things that you couldn't necessarily express yourself. Um, you know, it was in the, in the, of Louis the 14th and 15th. Although there's a, a great deal of debauchery and um, things happening, uh, it seems like even at the time this is one way for people to express their sexuality and sensuality uh, by, you know, engaging with these kinds of paintings and prints um, that have pictures of, you know, nudity or pictures of romance and, and
1: idealised scenery. Yes, quite. I mean, this is what we see very much throughout the period of this exhibition is that there are certain acceptable frameworks for expressing sexuality, um, which usually implies some degree of distancing from people's ordinary everyday existence. We don't usually see very many direct vernacular representations of sexuality. The exception to that is in the Northern European, in the in the Dutch and German, there are some really good examples of that. Um, but certainly with Rococo, I think... In a slightly similar way to the ways in which artists can use classical allegories or narratives, or indeed biblical ones, by using a, a kind of imagined pastoral, that this is something that's happening among the innocent. Peasants, <laughs> imagined peasants. This is a kind of a form of sexuality that's associated with, with innocence, possibly with a, a kind of lesser idea of civilization. And so there's a, a degree of othering that's happening within that. Uh, so yes, yeah, certainly it's it's providing a, a way of expressing sexuality and also within that a number of symbols and metaphors and ciphers for it. So in the example that you've mentioned in, in the enjoyable lesson, we have um, the shepherdess is receiving a flute lesson. Um, and, you know, there's a very obvious kind of element of phallic symbolism there. And we see... Um, and the same thing, I mean, even in the equivalent with the basket, you know, we see a lot of pouches and purses being used in the same way. Um, anything that's really sort of longer than it is wide is potentially <laughs> potentially phallic in this yeah. period as well. So, Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's a way of, of communicating sexuality without, without doing it directly, but in a way that it is, is very clearly recognisable to a knowing audience.
0: Mm. Yeah. And then if we move into the, the, I guess the little round, which has many depictions of Venus, and this is one of the expressions of sexuality as well. It's probably more overt, um, in this case. And we say this fantastic, um, Statue of Venus, which is yet yeah, really beautiful.
1: Um, could you
0: just share with us some of what makes that statue unique?
1: Oh, so the the Aphrodite, he's in the central section there, and and when I was thinking about that part of the exhibition, I I really wanted to produce a kind of temple of Venus in a way. Which, of course, in the classical context, Venus is a tremendously important goddess. She's an intercessor in in romantic affairs. If you want somebody to fall in love with you, you might make an offering to her, and. Venus, for all that she ceases to be worshipped in a in a literal sense, never really falls out of favour throughout the period we're looking at. She continues to be represented, and in the eighteenth and nineteenth century, with the uh, the nostalgia and romanticism and the cult of ruins, there is a real revival of interest in ideas of the garden temple of Venus. And so, the statue that we're talking about is actually an Aphrodite because she's she's from the Greek tradition. And what she is is an assemblage of a number of fragments. So the base. is the earliest part which we think dates to the second century and there are two other also older components so the head and part of the torso but these have been remodeled with much later additions to make a complete figure from what were once three separate figures and as part of that process, the silhouette of the figure has changed substantially. She has much larger breasts than you would expect on a classical figure. And this, of course, reflects the Edwardian-Victorian taste for hourglass figures. So there's a really interesting sense in this one object. She is a kind of encapsulation of the afterlife of... of art and objects around that theme of love, the ways in which expectations about imagery of desire have changed, ideas about femininity have changed. Um, So she's a a fascinating kind of case study in that. And of course the history of how she came to be in the National Gallery is interesting too, how these objects cross continents and how they are collected and conserved. Yes, because it is really quite interesting
0: that they have such a fantastic European collection and this really is about Europe and, and like the focus on love and how it's expressed in European art Mm -hmm. and I was interested that one of the um, very small works just when you're kind of exiting the anticipation section I think it's near um narcissism and it's focusing on self-love I guess oh yes yeah which is a great section it's fascinating to look <laughs> at um, and there's this one um you're gonna have to correct me as to exactly how you would describe it. it's like a miniature um, oh yes
1: yeah by Elizabeth Viget, Viget Lebrun. Lebrun yes yes one of my favorite works in the exhibition um and I actually sort of squeezed it in because it is late. It's technically 1830, but we can do a kind of long 18th century for the purposes of this, I think. Of course, and uh, being a woman who is is a hugely talented painter. Hugely talented, and she's actually our only named female artist in the exhibition, which is you know, unfortunate in many ways. I say named because the reality is that there are probably a number of female makers. Um, The textiles and certainly the wonderful stump work that we have in the later part of the exhibition would certainly have been worked by a female maker, but names are not attached to it because, of course, um, women's, women's creative work is not privileged in the same way that men's is in this time. But um, Vigée Lebrun is a real exception to this. She did put her name to her work. She was trained. She was um, accepted by the Royal Academy and she was a particular favourite of Marie Antoinette um, so much so that she was actually pretty much forced into exile at the time of the revolution. So close was her association with that family and proceeded to work at, at royal courts all around Europe and produced you know, the most extraordinary work she's a amazing portraitist Um, the ways in which she renders drapery is just just incredible exquisite exquisite. and this little miniature is very beautiful because it's a there's something about miniatures i think generally that carries a particular intimacy there is something the idea that you need to be close to them that you often touch them um that you that you have to lift them and 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 bring them close to your face you know there's something that's that's quite different i think to Mm -hmm. a large-scale portrait and within this it's very playful as well she's she's depicted herself looking back over her shoulder and her dress is falling away So you've got this beautiful kind of porcelain skin and it's painted on ivory, which of course has its own luminescence. So when you put watercolour over ivory, you still get some of that gorgeous sheen coming through, which gives a wonderful sense of kind of dewy skin. It's very, very fleshly medium. So yeah, it's a a gorgeous thing. It is beautiful. And she has painted herself as an artist painting exactly.
0: in, the, in the miniature
1: exactly and she's painting Cupid <laughs> <laughs> aptly enough for the exhibition. yeah
0: and there is a, a wonderful self-portrait similarly um, by herself in the National Gallery in London and that's obviously on a large scale mm. but it just shows that there the self-portrait and the way that um, this kind of comes into love is really interesting because love is multifaceted and it's not just a romantic love which is what this exhibition really brings out and the history of emotions of which you're, you know, a scholar in as well, Mm. um, you know, really adds a lot of richness to this topic. How have you um, throughout this exhibition incorporated, I guess, the many um, expressions of love and kinds
1: of love? Well, that was actually one of the primary intentions of this exhibition was to think about broadening out that definition of love. And certainly for the Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotion, which is the um, the particular research centre that has funded the exhibition um, and has collaborated with the NGV on it, the idea of thinking about the complexity of emotion is really central to that and thinking about the ways in which we define and understand and express emotions, the ways in which that has changed over time is pivotal to that so of course today we do have as you mentioned a kind of hierarchy in our ideas of love and certainly in in popular depictions of love we tend to position romantic love as as the kind of the dominant the pinnacle of of emotional experience Um, but of course for much of the early modern period this is a society which is very based on ideas of duty and, and broader social responsibility, responsibility to your family, um, often to your country, to the church very strongly so these in a way less less romantic less less sexy ideas of emotional experience are actually what are manifested in much of the art of this period so we see religious devotion very prominently and of course particularly because for much of the period that we're looking at most of the art is funded by the church so um That's a a very strong element in the exhibition. Uh, Also expressions of patriotism and and, uh, nationalism, sometimes in the context of dissent, as we see in the later part of the exhibition with uh, imagery of Charles I. Also, I think we see ideas of narcissism and, and vanity, as you mentioned, materialism and the love of objects, which, of course, plays a big role in, in collecting um, and in building museum collections also. Uh, so it's a, it's a very complex emotion, And this is one of the other things which, when you mentioned right at the beginning, that idea of choosing black for the exhibition space. Many of the emotions with which love is ex- associated in this period are not what we might term positive emotions, you know, for every um, moment of, of innocence and bliss and and joy and indeed compassion or charity, there are moments of regret and jealousy and sadness and loss um, and bitterness. <laughs> so, Tutely, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a very complex and, and often quite quite dark emotion as well.
0: It is, it's yeah. probably one of the the emotions that you would think is the most extreme in the sense mm. that you can go very quickly from an, a feeling of elation and, you know, in the sense of romantic love, huge amounts of amorous feelings mm-hmm. and then, you know, very quickly be brought back down to earth and f- have feelings of questioning and doubt and confusion and some of it, some of that do- does kind of get reflected in this this oh, exhibition. it does,
1: profoundly. Yeah. And I think it's interesting also in thinking about what have been the inspirations, the motivators for producing art and and literature and music on the subject of love that very often it's not the phase of contentment that inspires people it's the phase of yearning and and often unrequited unfulfilled love and then memory longing and loss you know and I think the most passionate expressions of, of that emotion are often in those phases that surround what we might what we might turn the moment of love, the moment of fulfilment, it's the precariousness on either side of it that seems to really motivate art. It does, yeah. and one of the things that um, that really is brought out in
0: terms of the dark side of love and the the I guess the grief stricken side of love is in the final um, part where it's about remembrance, and. Um, well, there are many pieces in that section that are great and should be highlighted, but there are some which I know you've paid particular attention to um, called morning jewellery. And when we say mourning, we mean mourning the dead, not mourning in the morning.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> um, and so well, could you kind of share with us, I guess, paint a picture of what morning jewellery
1: looks like and why it was created? Absolutely. Look, this has been one of my, my favourite parts of working on the exhibition um, is looking at these these objects again because there is that sense that they are tremendously personal objects in a way that, for example, a large-scale painting which was exhibited um, in an academic context or indeed painted for a, for a church or a, or a great house. These are very much about public display. Morning jewellery is all about the personal and it's about touch and it's about the senses. And it was produced... Um, really in part as an extension of the memento mori tradition, um, which is about the idea of often wearing or having about you symbols of death as a reminder of human mortality, the imminence of the grave, and with that, the imperative of living virtuously. So, memento mori is connected to a kind of religious context in its early incarnations. And also... To a certain extent, connected to the relic tradition, so the idea that you can have fragments of a of a martyred person, usually, or um, and that those fragments have a spiritual power of their own, that proximity to those those fragments of the body can give you a kind of a spiritual elevation and a connection to the sacred. So, mourning jewelry was produced as. Objects of personal commemoration for after people had lost a loved one. Of course, this is a period in which mortality rates in Europe are extraordinarily high. Death is really an everyday kind of experience. And the rituals and objects around it really help to regulate the emotion around mourning and loss. So mourning jewellery often includes symbols of death. So things like the skull in its early, in the the 16th century, very often see the skull and, and crossed bones underneath it. Hourglasses, sometimes even worms, to symbolise the decay of the body. Creepy, isn't it? It's very literal. (laughs) It's very, you know. Yeah. And then, as this tradition develops, we begin to see also the names of the deceased inscribed, often in enamel, around the band of a ring or onto a pendant, and the inclusion of hair as well. So this is the link to the relic tradition too. So sometimes the hair will just be a simple lock, and sometimes it's very elaborately worked. Sometimes it's chopped up and mixed with glue and made into a pit. um, which might be a tiny little picture inside a ring or a locket. When we get into the Victorian period, which is actually after the scope of this exhibition, you see the hair being used as a three-dimensional medium. So it, it gets boiled and mixed with glue and plattered into three-dimensional bracelets and brooches, extraordinary objects. And there are all kinds of scandals around people sending away their loved one's hair and getting back something that's not quite the right colour. And, you know, have you actually had horse hair substituted? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a fascinating kind of area. And it's, it's again, very much the sense that um, your loved one is still to some extent present with you um, as as part of your ordinary everyday experience.
0: Yeah Yeah. and it's I guess one way to express your feeling of grief Mm. whilst uh, I guess maintaining a sense of control and feeling secure and feeling like you really have still a connection with the person who is now no longer with you.
1: Exactly yeah it's there's a real element of combining the public and the private in it because you know these are very intimate objects they're worn against the skin they're often worn over the heart particularly in the 18 century where we have the the establishment of the heart as the site of romantic feeling the idea of wearing jewelry over it is immensely symbolic but they also are about the public expression of grief too and we see um as we move into into the 19th century this becomes particularly prominent the idea that you announce your grief as well as feeling it Mm. Um, and then when we look in that final room there's also really
0: um What's the word? Uh, really exaggerated or um, very bodily expressions mm. of grief, and there is a really um, beautiful large painting which I'll let you describe. Um, in in just kind of it's fairly central actually to that room, and there's also a, a statue which is depicting um, a religious. Kind of moment between, I think it's Christ and is it Mary? Yes, yeah. Yes. When he's he's off being, being pulled down from the crucifix, I believe. Yes. Um, could you kind of share with us those kind of the ways that the body is expressed in terms of grief and love um, in these two artworks, and and how you've put them together or contrasted them?
1: Certainly, and I'm. Um, I mean, that's really one of my favourite moments in the exhibition that I, I thought about from the beginning of it. One of the things that. Um, when you're thinking about the history of emotions, a kind of sense of universality of emotion is a really interesting idea there. And the ways in which you can have secular and devotional works expressing a sense of common feeling and gesture is one of the most immediately apparent legible i think ways in which that is done so the painting that you're mentioning is regnier's hero in leander which is of course a very famous greek myth of romantic martyrdom in which leander swims out to his lover hero every night across the helipont and uh she guides his journey with a lantern and on a particular night uh the lair is a storm and the lantern is blown out and he drowns at sea and uh the moment that's depicted is hero mourning his dead body um on the shore and he has a very beautiful long sinuous nude body with a bit of tasteful drapery and hero is is above it with arms outstretched in this this symbol of grief and his arms are also outstretched below so there's a kind of mirroring of the two bodies and there is also within that of course the outstretched arms has a very obvious association of imagery of the crucifixion too so there is in this image of romantic martyrdom there are shades of the idea of religious martyrdom as well And the image in front of it that you mentioned is a really wonderful sculpture. It's a carved wooden sculpture which belongs to the National Gallery in Canberra, actually, and which we're very fortunate to have in the exhibition. And it is a Pietà, um, which translates as as an image of pity. And it is the Madonna cradling Christ's dead body, Um, after he's come down from the cross. And it's quite a roughly carved wooden sculpture. And this is one of the things which I think makes it so potent emotionally is that there is a sense of the form of the kind of curled, gnarled wood in it. You can see the shape of the tree there's immense distortion in Christ's body. And it's there's like w- it's writhing and it's very um, disjointed and exactly. angular. Exactly, angular and and there is a way in which that kind of visceral physical distortion really mirrors a sense of emotional torment in that image too. But what's wonderful when you put these two images together is the way they speak to each other in a sense. There is a real feeling I think of of common grief and yearning and and I think what we realise from this too is that very often, when I mentioned earlier this idea that the church is, is commissioning most of the art in the in the early in the medieval and, and the early modern period, that for all that these are devotional works, they are also about communicating emotion more broadly. the The vocabulary for it is a religious vocabulary, but the experience is one that I think anyone who has experienced love and loss can relate to in a way. And it's the same, I think, for images of of maternal love in this period, um, for images of of erotic desire. They may have a a religious framework, but the feeling is far broader than that.
0: Yeah. So, and that's what makes, I guess, this exhibition so relatable and relevant to now. It can seem often that because it's been you know produced in such a a a time far beyond or before our time that it's harder to relate to but I actually think that because the way in is emotion and it's about love and these really human themes that we consistently have all the time and and really the complexities of human nature that this exhibition is very accessible in terms of um just looking at and the representation of men and women in the exhibition, because I just wanted to kind of close off on that. Um, with the men, we do see um, some, Some, as you say, one of the, the men, was it Leander? Yes. In that painting who is fairly... Um, Unclothed, and he has that uh, robe which is over the bottom lower half of him. Mm. But then we also see in depictions of Saint Sebastian, who is one of those very commonly depicted saints that has um, some eroticized undertones, I guess, in very religious settings. Yes. And, and so, you know, it's not just women. We would often assume that it would be women who would be. Um, in some ways, objectified or mm. put up as an idealised form in terms of the naked body, but then we also see men, not to the same extent, and generally not always as unclothed. Um, but you know, we do, we also do see that happen for men. Could you kind of share with us, I guess, a bit a bit more about how men are depicted in this? exhibition.
1: Certainly and it's a really interesting point actually and it's, it's one of the things that I wanted to think about too was um, not necessarily just reinforcing our established understanding of what the what the gender power dynamic is in this period because it's actually more complex than one might presume and while we do have a number of quite traditionally passive feminine nudes we have lots of scenes of classical abductions etc that that one might expect there is actually a full spectrum of of gender in a way expressed in this exhibition and as you mentioned one of the ways in which that is done is very often through images of martyrdom and the fact that something is is a religious image absolutely does not discount it's also being an erotic image in this period Um, there is absolutely an established language for expressing eroticism through religious allegory and saint sebastian is um, not only a kind of erotic icon but later on particularly in the 19th century, a distinctly homoerotic icon as well. Um, I think the other thing we have to remember in the depiction of male and female bodies in this period is that Artists working on the nude and producing female nudes for much of the period that we're looking at are actually working from male bodies. So they're very often working from apprentices, from young male bodies in producing imagery of female nudes. And people often comment on the the muscularity of female nudes in this period. And that's presented often as a, a sign of artists getting it wrong—that artists don't know how to draw a, a female body. I think it's often more complicated than that, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a um, there is a kind of covert homoeroticism that is expressed through these these often androgynous bodies, which I think reference both genders potentially intentionally and talking about artistic intention is is difficult always. But I don't think we can discount a kind of a homoeroticism in that too. And we do have a couple of works that also um reference that directly. Jura's Men's Bath, for example, is a wonderfully yeah, playful work funny. that does that does that quite literally, mm. you know, through innuendo but but heavy handed innuendo, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um and likewise, I think in, in depictions of, of femininity for this period too, we see a lot of examples of, of quite strong, quite dominant femininity too. Um, we have obviously that that traditional idea of the femme fatale and the dangerous idea of female sexuality. But we also have images of you know the goddess Venus. Female sexuality is something that is powerful and also productive. Um, so there's, there's not one accepted way of associating um, eroticism and, and gender, essentially, I guess.
0: Which yeah. is so wonderful to mm. think that, um, you know, it, it has that full spectrum that we would often mm. associate more with contemporary understandings of mm-hmm. gender. And
1: I don't think we're possibly even very successful at doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think, I mean, it's a very obvious thing to say, but there, I guess there has always been a very broad spectrum of gender and of and of sexual desire. And it's just that the ways of communicating this have shifted Um, and so I suppose part of our aim is to try and draw out what those might be and of course also the thing that we have to think about is that we're also working within a collection that has been acquired with particular priorities and um, museum collections are are built built around the tastes of particular individuals at particular times and that was one of the things that I found very much working on sexuality in this exhibition was that for example large-scale Painted works with with erotic content, large scale, um, new, you know Renaissance nudes, for example. The NGV doesn't have a great number of them, so in some cases you're dealing with potentially um, the the prejudices or the or the preferences I suppose and also public expectations about what a national gallery should be collecting what's a proper thing for a national gallery to be collecting absolutely yeah so this is really a new way
0: of exploring art in an exhibition in terms of this emotion the focus on emotion and the various themes and aspects of emotion how many works are included in this exhibition? And if people want to go along, how can they engage with the exhibition? So I know that you can you can attend for free. It's on the ground level um, to your right as you enter. But also, um, the, are there programs around this exhibition where people can kind of delve more into what's uh, represented?
1: Yes, there certainly are. So we have a symposium, which will be from the 4th to 6th of May. Um, that will be held at the NGV and at the University of Melbourne. And we're going to be bringing together a number of uh, academics and curators from Australia and internationally speaking all around the theme of love so speaking about the works in the exhibition but also those uh, works from other collections which might be related to it so that should be a really exciting event and we're also thinking about the relationship between visual art and other forms so music and literature um, as well within that we also have a series of three masterclasses which are beginning next week um which are looking at um histories of emotion histories of love particularly we have one which relates to um love and history and objects one which relates to literature um and one which relates to music and those are um those are terrific events which the ngv is um has is holding in conjunction with uh, with other academics as well specialists in the in those fields um and there are also a number of um there are tours that you can have with a voluntary guide and um, they're also curators floor talks which Um, would be you that's me yes Yes. (laughs) um uh, yes, yeah, so I would encourage you to go onto the NGV website and have a look. All of those uh, are listed there. Um, and it's a terrific opportunity, I think, to look at the look at the works and think about their context as well. And I think you asked how many. There are yeah. around 220 works in it's the exhibition. It's pretty big. It is a big exhibition, yeah. yeah.
0: And there is an extensive catalogue. So if anyone wants to engage further, that's
1: there too. There is. And the catalogue, we were very, very fortunate with the contributors to that. So um, we have contributors from the from the National Gallery but also international scholars who are specialists in particular aspects of the exhibition. Um, and it's a it's a lovely um, long and, and fully illustrated um, book as well, which it's, is quite
0: rare to yeah. have it all in colour and pretty much all of the works somehow depicted.
1: Yes, yes, it was a, a real luxury actually, and it's one of the wonderful things about the Centre of History of Emotion um, is that it's it allowed us to, to do that. So, yeah. thank you to the government and the ARC um, Centre, absolutely. Australian Research Council is it's mm. been enormously important in this, and it's and it's wonderful because this is a public collection. The NGV is a public collection, and giving people the opportunity to experience it and learn from it, um, it's it's a, a real privilege, I and guess. And a great yeah.
0: way to spend your afternoon or weekend mm. is thinking about love.
1: It is. It is. And, and you know, one hopes that... Um, that that in the context of thinking about so many kind of dreadful negative things that we we're usually focused on that this is a, a moment to think about something um, more, more positive positive, more productive absolutely yeah, yeah. Angela thank you so much for
0: sharing your expertise and insights with us it's just been absolutely wonderful to have you in
1: thank you so much for inviting me Amy it's been lovely it's my pleasure and
0: you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple rrr website. Hope to see you again next time.